I remember years ago reading a story about a dad who took his son to one side and said, Son, today I'm going to teach you one of the most important lessons you'll ever learn about life. The father took his son out to the back of the house and he had him climb onto the roof of a building that was back there. And then he looked up at his son and he said, I want you to jump down. I know that's scary, but I'm here and I'll catch you. Just trust me. Well, the boy jumped. His dad moved out of the way, and the boy broke his leg. And as he lay there, his dad said, Son, the lesson is never trust anyone. What a terrible thing. And yet, if you've been through hard knocks in your life, Maybe you'd say breaking a leg is a hard way to learn the lesson, but it's still an important lesson. Maybe you'd say it's the best way to approach life. Never trust anyone, never put your hope in anyone, because they're bound to let you down. You may have experienced that from a friend, maybe even a spouse or someone in authority who you were counting on. It's easy for us, as we go through life, to become disillusioned and tell ourselves it's just safer not to trust anyone. We have been looking at the book of Hebrews. We've seen in previous weeks, this book was written to discouraged Christians. Their lives were getting more difficult because of their commitment to Jesus. That commitment was not making these people very popular in their society. Maybe in some cases, it wasn't making them very popular in their families. It wasn't opening many doors for them in life. In fact, it seemed to be closing doors. These Christians are wondering if they should just give it all up and try something different. The book of Hebrews is written to them as a word of encouragement. That's what it says at the end of the book. Last week we listened to what we could call the sharp end of that encouragement. It was a very strong warning to go on to maturity. Not to be content to be a baby Christian, but to grow up in the faith. And we saw last week that we grow up by learning more about the faith And by using what we learn, putting it into practice, the writer gave us a firm prod to keep going. But our passage last week finished with these words. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Encouragement is about more than just a firm prod. Encouragement is also about strengthening our hope. And so the writer ended by pointing us to what has been promised. And now in our passage this morning, he's going to do two things. He's going to remind us of God's promise. What exactly is it God has promised? And we're going to hear about the character of the God who made the promise. We're going to hear about his 
absolute commitment to keeping his promise. Our faith and our patience will grow when we know what God has promised and when we know he can be counted on to keep his promise. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1205 and in the large print, 1866. Chapter 6, verse 13. And I'll read down to the end of chapter 6. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. And these verses present us with God, the promise keeper. And they give us two truths. God has staked his reputation on keeping his promise to Abraham. And second, God is keeping his promise through Jesus. So first, God has staked his reputation on keeping his promise to Abraham. We noticed in previous weeks, the book of Hebrews really is a sermon on the Old Testament. And here in verses 13 to 15, the subject is God's promise to Abraham in the Old Testament. So if we're going to understand these verses, because they're very condensed, if we're going to understand them, we have to know Abraham's story. It began in a world that was subjected to frustration. That frustration came about because of human sin. Beginning of the Bible tells us Adam and Eve rebelled against God's authority. They wanted to take God's place. And their sin led to frustration all around. It led to a broken relationship between them and God. It led to an uneasy relationship with each other. And a difficult relationship with the world they lived in. Work became painful toil from then on. Adam and Eve's children arrived into that broken world and they carried on the rebellion. Genesis chapter 11 tells us they wanted to build a city. And the point of that city was to have a tower that reached to the heavens. They were sending a statement. They wanted to take God's place. And in response to that, God scattered the people across the earth. He would not let humanity overthrow him. 
But God didn't abandon humanity either. God began a project to reclaim and renew what sin had destroyed. And God started it all with a man whose name at that time was Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, we read this. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We're not told whether Abram had heard from God before. But the next verse tells us Abram went as the Lord had told him. And he went in response to a great promise. Through Abram's family, God was going to bless the whole earth. But sometime later, we find Abram a little perplexed. He points out to God that it's a bit hard for all this to come true so long as he has no children. And he has no children. God says to Abram, I'll take care of it. Trust me. And God does take care of it. First, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of many. And finally, 25 years after the original promise, Abraham has a son called Isaac. It's great. Now, God's plan can unfold. The world can be blessed through Abram's descendants. But then God does something that appears to be the most bizarre thing imaginable. He appears to be destroying any hope of his promise being fulfilled. Genesis chapter 22 begins like this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. God gives an incredible command. And just as incredible, Abraham obeys. He takes Isaac up the mountain, he binds him, and he lays him on the altar. Then he takes his knife to sacrifice his son. What was Abraham thinking? Well, if we read the rest of Genesis 22, we would get a clue as to what he was thinking. As Abraham set off to climb the mountain with Isaac, he said to his servants who were staying at the bottom, we will come back to you. Only the two of us are climbing this hill and God has told me to kill my son, but we will come back to you. Later in Hebrews, we're told what lay behind that statement. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. Isaac's going to die, but we will come back to you. That is pretty strong faith. But that is not what happens on the mountain. As Abraham raises his knife, God says, stop. Isaac is not going to die. I have provided a sacrifice. 
Abraham looks and he sees a ram caught in a bush. He sacrifices the ram instead of Isaac. And as that substitute is burning on the altar, we read this. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And God then goes on to repeat the words of his original promise. All nations on earth will be blessed through Abraham's descendants. Now all of that is the background to what we read here in Hebrews 6, 13 to 15. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Behind that simple statement in verse 15 lies a vast amount of faith and patience. Decades worth. There must have been plenty of times in Abraham's life when it was white-knuckle faith and patience. Agonizing times. Especially on the mountain. When God seemed to be taking away what he'd promised. But at that terrible moment, God did two things. First of all, he gave a hint as to how he would bless the world in the long run. Just as he provided a ram to die in Isaac's place, so he would provide a substitute to die in humanity's place. And the second thing God did on the mountain was to bind himself. Earlier, he'd made a promise. On the mountain, he confirmed that promise by taking an oath in his own name. Verse 13 says, Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you. And that oath has a specific sense to it that doesn't come across in English. God is not just saying, I will bless you. What he actually says is, if I don't bless you, and the implication is, if I don't keep my promise, let my name be mud. If I don't keep my promise, let me never be trusted again. That's what it means for God to swear by himself. It's to swear by his own good name. To put his own good name on the line. God has staked his reputation on his promise to Abraham. That's how committed he is to fulfilling the promise. And remember, the promise was not just for Abraham. It said all peoples on earth would be blessed through Abraham's descendants, literally Abraham's seed. And this is where it connects with you and me. God has staked his reputation on blessing you and me through Abraham's seed. So if you think of God as someone who keeps himself detached, if you think of him as a God who doesn't get too involved with his creation, 
then that is not the God of the Bible you're thinking of. The God of the Bible made a promise and he tied his honor to the fulfillment of that promise. God could not be more involved with his creation. His eternal reputation is bound up with what he does here on the earth. And God himself set it up that way. He wasn't backed into a corner. He didn't have to do it. So whatever you think of God, do not think that he's half-hearted. That he's only lightly invested in how human history turns out. God is all in when it comes to humanity. God says, judge my character on whether I keep my promise to Abraham. Just as a kind of side note here, there are a couple of places where the New Testament speaks negatively about taking oaths. And so some Christians have wondered if it's wrong to do it. Well, that idea, as you can see, runs into trouble here because God himself has taken an oath in front of the whole world. And in fact, if we were to look at those other passages, what we'd find is when the New Testament speaks negatively about oaths, it's talking about personal integrity. The point is, we should always be trustworthy, not just when we're under oath. Our yes should always mean yes, and our no should always mean no. But that doesn't rule out legal situations where an oath is appropriate. And so we read here in verse 16, people swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. In some situations, an oath is appropriate. Last Thursday, Megan became a British citizen. I had been warning you in installments that that was coming up. Well, it happened last week. The ceremony was in Walsall Town Hall. It was a beautiful day. Nice occasion, and we met the mayor. Another, another important-looking person was there beside her who was even wearing a sword. And that's as impressive as it gets for our boys, a real sword. And as part of the ceremony, Meghan swore allegiance to the queen. The queen wasn't there, but her picture was on the wall. And she swore by Almighty God. So even today... In a society that is fairly godless, there is a realization that an oath is more solemn if we swear by someone greater than ourselves. And there is no one greater than God. So how much more certain and reliable when God swears by himself? If the queen is willing to trust Megan's solemn oath in God's name, how much more can you and I trust God's oath in his own name? That's what verses 17 and 18 tell us. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. 
What are those two unchangeable things? They are God's promise plus his oath in his own name. God will not break his promise because he's a faithful God. God will not break his oath because his reputation rests on it. God has made a double commitment. That means, according to the writer of Hebrews, it is impossible he could abandon his plan to reclaim and bless his creation. If you have fled to him for refuge and help, you can be confident of receiving refuge and help in the present and in the future. Our God is the promise keeper. Whatever else you might experience in this world that lets you down, our God is a trustworthy God. We have firm grounds for faith and patience. Now that does not necessarily mean, however, that God is going to work to our time scale. He certainly didn't work to Abraham's time scale. Abraham lived in a much more relaxed culture than we do. But still, even in Abraham's culture, waiting 25 years for God to give him a son, that was a long wait. You and I live with the expectation that everything's going to be instant, from our food to our internet connection. So how much more do we need faith and patience to wait for God's timing in our lives. God may not work to our time scale, and he may not move his plan forward the way we expect him to. I have no doubt Abraham thought a lot about that when God gave him the command to sacrifice Isaac and then provided the ram as a substitute for Isaac. When we come to God, we come to a God who is trustworthy and we become part of something that is much, much bigger than just our time and our place. It stretches right across history from the beginning to the end. But maybe all this talk about Abraham still seems a bit remote to us. Do we have any other ground for our hope? Has God done anything to fulfill his promise and oath to Abraham? Yes. The final verses here remind us God is keeping his promise through Jesus. Verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. God delivered the promise to Abraham. God keeps the promise through Jesus. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham who brings blessing to all peoples on earth. And Jesus brought this about not by climbing off the altar like his ancestor Isaac did, Jesus submitted to be the sacrifice. 
He climbed a hill outside Jerusalem and allowed himself to be crucified. That's why the New Testament calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaac climbed off the altar so a substitute could die in his place. Jesus stayed on the cross because he was the substitute. And when we come with our shame and our sin and our fear, when we come and trust that Jesus died in our place, then we're washed clean of our guilt. Our relationship with God is restored. We're adopted into the family of God. The family that is drawn from all peoples on earth. And we look forward to living one day in a creation finally liberated from its bondage to decay. A new heaven and earth. And as God's children, these verses remind us, we do not have a dead saviour. We have a risen, exalted one. The temple in Israel had an inner room where only the high priest could go. God was present there, hidden behind a thick curtain in the temple. And in weeks to come, Hebrews is going to tell us how that sanctuary on earth was a picture of heaven. That's where God is present in all of his glory. That's where the risen Jesus has gone. Not into a temple in Jerusalem, but into God's presence in heaven. And we're told he has gone there as our forerunner. A forerunner goes ahead to prepare the way for those who are going to follow. He goes there to represent us. And that's why Hebrews earlier encouraged us to approach God's throne of grace with confidence. We can have confidence because we have a representative there. Our prayers are welcome. And chapter 7 is going to say much more about how Jesus is our representative. We're going to get the story of Melchizedek and how he helps us to understand Jesus. But look how verse 19 sums up the message of this passage. It tells us we have an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It doesn't matter how rough the sea is, a good anchor will keep a ship off the rocks. Providing, of course, the anchor is fixed to something that's solid. And here we are told our hope is like an anchor. But it is not an anchor dropped randomly into a dark ocean. As if it doesn't matter what we hope in so long as we have hope. No, as Christians, our hope is an anchor that has found a firm grip in heaven. Our hope is firm and secure because it's fixed to God's throne. the place where our forerunner, Jesus, has gone on our behalf. And so we can trust God because his commitment is absolute. 
He signaled his commitment with a promise to bring blessing to all peoples on earth. God confirmed his commitment with an oath, tying his good name to the promise. And God is making good on his commitment in the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to see just how all in God is, look at the cross where Jesus died for our sin. Look at the empty tomb where Jesus was raised to be our forerunner, our representative in God's presence. We started by wondering who we can trust in this world. The answer is we can trust the God of the Bible. He has gone all the way in his commitment to bless us. When you and I put our hope in him, we have a firm and secure anchor for our souls. And a good anchor will always be tested by winds and by storms. And our hope in God will be tested by life. Life will throw up ugly waves and rocks. But when our hope is fixed to God's throne, we are eternally safe. We have every reason for faith and patience. Our last song gives us an opportunity to respond to God's word.